Hello, this is William Pink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 22nd, 2022. Once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is actually part 69 in this series of presentations. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In our last presentation of these 100 proofs, we endeavored to show that there are certain men whom Yahweh God could not have cleansed, and whom he had never intended to cleanse. Because, as it is prophesied in the Old Testament, he only intended to cleanse the children of Israel of their sins. So for that same reason, in the presentation preceding that, we had discussed what Yahweh God had cleansed on the cross of Christ, which must have been the children of Israel, whom he had explicitly promised to cleanse in the words of the prophets. So if God had only cleansed certain men and only considered them clean, as he had promised, it must be evident that there were men who were not cleansed by him, and as we argued here last week, it is for that reason that Judas was not clean, and that Paul of Tarsus spoke of disgusting and wicked men who were never candidates for conversion to Christianity, but against whom Paul had prayed for protection. Furthermore, of such men are the unclean whom Paul had told his readers to come out from among, particularly in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he was paraphrasing the words of the prophet Isaiah. This, as we had spoken last week, leads us now to discuss the blood of the Lamb. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, yeah, so here we're going to see that um, essentially, again, that Christ only died for Israel, although there is a wider implication that he died to restore Adam as well. But that's the resurrection, right? The, the afterlife that Adam was created to be immortal and that Christ got rid of Hades and death. Thus, he was restoring us, us all to our former self. Um, once he returns the second time, you know, in, in heaven, in, in the next life. And, but ultimately, he only died for us in, in this life that we would carry on until he returned. We'd be the only people who have that promise to be preserved. And, and that's why the blood of lamb was for us to release us from the marriage, essentially, so that we could remarry him, that we were no longer where, where um, we were deported because uh, our ancestors essentially were you know, quote unquote, cheating on God with other nations, other religions, even race mixing, that the penalty was death. Well, we're released on that. And thanks to Christ dying, we continued and we've survived since then, right? 2000 years since he came. And, and if you count the other 700 since the deportations, we're still here. Thanks to uh, Yahweh having mercy on us and coming down as a man. And we even see that in Egypt, as we spoke last week, that the blood of the lamb was only on their doors. It didn't save the Egyptians. No Egyptians were saved. And thus, the same thing here. It's only promised to save us. Even though the Egyptians would be in the afterlife, only we're preserved. So we should know that only the Israelites 
pretty much of the Adamic nation should be around now, right, Bill? Well, well, that's absolutely true, and and the overall scope of the history of our race, that race of Genesis ten, that Bible is describing our race as it existed at the time of Moses, from the division of the nations at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter eleven to the division of the land in the time of Peleg, which is also described in that chapter, into the groups of the descendants of the sons of Noah, which are enumerated in Genesis chapter 10. When you look back into that and correlate scripture and history and what we know from archaeology, all of those nations were white nations. But the children of Israel had a promise of preservation, which can only be understood when you examine the history of all of those other white nations and how the Persians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and and the Medes and all of these ancient great powerful nations Egypt was the most powerful nation of its time for practically a thousand years. How they all fell to being overrun with aliens and mixed in with non-white races. And that's because they were not, pu- they were not promised preservation. And there is clear evidence of that in scripture. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 43, in the opening verses of the chapter, where Yahweh God makes the explicit statement that he gave up Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba for the benefit of the children of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Yahweh God wanted the children of Israel to go into Assyrian captivity. And as it is actually presaged in the words of the prophet Jonah, that would actually help to shield them and protect them from the punishment that was going to come upon the ancient world. And that punishment came in a plague of people. He promised to destroy all the nations that had oppressed the children of Israel. After the children of Israel, soon after the children of Israel had been taken to captivity in Assyria, the Assyrian Empire was destroyed in part by the children of Israel themselves, and that process took perhaps 130 or 140 years to be completely fulfilled. All of those nations, ever since the captivities and deportations and the subsequent migrations and resettlements of the Israelites in Europe, all of those other nations had been destroyed and consumed by the people that we know today as Jews and Arabs. And that's why they are all brown today, where at one time they were all white. That's history in a nutshell. Once you understand that, then you understand the promises, the gravity of the promises of preservation to the children of Israel and the gravity and fulfillment of the promises to Abraham to inherit the quote-unquote world. 
that the white nations which survived came to dominate that world, in spite of the Jews and Arabs. Now we are in a whole different phase of prophecy, and even though our white culture and white technology and, and white rule of law still dominate the world, we suffer from other problems, mostly caused by our own sin, which has also been foreseen by God, but he will save us out of it. We will not fail. We will inherit the earth. And you realize how important uh, Christianity was, right? They preserved Europe, um, well, God, for over a thousand years, right? Because it kept all these dark hordes out and, and it kept us together. And you see why, why they attack Christianity so much, because it's it's the barrier that protects us, right? Uh, as long as we uh, obey its laws, obey Yahweh, that then we're protected. But when we start to go away, you see uh, the hell it makes, right, in all of our nations. Right. There is a there is a greater paradigm presented by the Bible, which applies to the entire Adamic race and the eternal life of the entire Adamic race. However, as you suggested, that paradigm is outside of the scope of the New Testament and the specific promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we even though it's alluded to in the words of Christ, such as his statements that the Assyrian would rise in the judgment and condemn the race of the Judeans, and that the Queen of the South, who was of Sheba, would arise in judgment and condemn the race of the Judeans, even though that's alluded to, it's not really a part of the New Covenant promises and it's peripheral to our purpose here in the world in the present time. I hope that makes sense. So now we're led to talk about the blood of the Lamb. An allegorical description of the crucifixion of Christ as the blood of a Lamb is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, where we read, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed, with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. When Peter wrote those words, he was, a, he was not addressing Jews. He was addressing Christians of the Roman provinces of Anatolia, having described them as sojourners, where he also informed them that they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Then he encouraged them that upon their trials, they could look forward to receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us did they minister the, the things which are now reported unto you by them, that I preach the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So, 
where Peter speaks of the foreknowledge of God. First, that must be the foreknowledge which is expressed in the prophets. And there is no foreknowledge of God that's made known to any man except through those same prophets or later by Yahshua Christ. So these churches really had no license to make up things or, or to insist on doctrines that are not found in the promises of the prophets and claim that that's the will of God. It's simply not so. They can't go to Paul's epistles and pick out the words all men and claim that it applies to every single hominid on the planet when that isn't even what Paul was saying when that removes Paul's words from their original context, and that same Paul of Tarsus professed again and again that Christ had come to fulfill the promises made to the fathers in the words of the prophets. So they have no right to do that. They have no license to make Christianity universal, none whatsoever. There's no space for that in any of Scripture. When we examine all the words of the prophets which describe salvation and all the promises of Christ, they only apply to the children of Israel exclusively. So where Peter wrote, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers in relation to the blood of the Lamb, the historical context is found in the Old Testament explanations of the reasons for the sending of the children of Israel into captivity, and by saying vain conversation, which is vain conduct, Peter is describing to the sins of the ancient children of Israel. There is an indirect prophecy of Christ as the Lamb in Jeremiah chapter 11. And I will read five verses. Yahweh called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. That is the fate of the children of Israel in their sin as they're being taken into captivity. For Yahweh of hosts that planted thee has pronounced evil against thee, for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense unto Baal, and all of the associated other sins that go along with the idolatrous worship of the time. And Yahweh has given me knowledge of it, and I know it. Then thou showed me their doings, but I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. But, O Yali of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins and heart, let me see thy vengeance upon them. For unto thee have I revealed my cause. 
So we see the allegory existed in the Old Testament. And it's also found in the Psalms, but it's fulfilled in Christ. And today it's pretty much the same, right? Where um, our society is basically destroying it itself and people don't even realize, right? Where, um, you know, they allow like homosexuality and degeneracy and, and all that kind of stuff, which essentially would lead us to basically being extinct and uh, race mixed out of existence, right? Even though people don't even realize it. Well, well, right. And then they wonder how they're being or why they're being economically oppressed and why their children and their daughters are being are being raped or killed in the streets, why there is such a high crime rate, why the taxes are so oppressive. It's the natural result result of their sin. Why their politicians just simply lie to them all the time, why all of these perversions are now being now being taught to their children in schools. And they wonder about these things, and it's because they themselves have accepted all of these modern perversions, which are still sins in the eyes of God, because God doesn't change. So if there's high crime, oppressive taxes, um, exorbitant interest rates, exorbitant banking fees, if you can't do business without losing most of what you've earned in taxes or in crime from the result of crime that then you should know that you're being punished for your sins and not necessarily for your personal sins but for the sins of the people in your community the people around you and that's exactly and, what's um, going on we'll today also build the, uh, so i was just going to say the deportations actually saved us right what most people don't realize it wasn't just the punishment it was also part of the guarantee that yahweh would preserve us he got us out of that hellhole away from the canaanites right where even though we ha our ancestors had a hard time probably initially under the syrians they did build back up gradually right well absolutely and and where i started to go earlier and i should have gone but i it sort of slipped my mind as i had too many digressions and got distracted is that that is why Egypt and Ethiopia were destroyed that's how Yahweh gave them up on behalf of the children of Israel and that's because as we see in the narrative of the prophets and the historical accounts the children of Israel were always turning to Egypt in order to try to get military assistance against its enemies to the north. So this comes out especially a hundred years later in the time of Babylon. But Egypt was overrun by Nubians in the 8th century BC, right around the same time that Isaiah had written those words. Egypt being overrun could not come to the assistance of the, the Israelites, even if they wanted to. So, because of the divisions between Syria and Judah, and Syria and Israel, and the contention between them, which Yahweh had raised up from the time of Elijah, 
the Assyrians were able to pick them off one at a time. Egypt being debilitated with the Nubians and basically overrun by niggers is basically what happened, as well as Ethiopia to the south, the children of Israel could turn to no allies and eventually with the divisions between them and Judah and Damascus, they all fell to the Assyrians. They had no united front. They had no effective defense. The Assyrians were much more powerful when the children of Israel were all divided. So Assyria prevailed. But the protection that the children of Israel would ultimately have because they were taken into captivity is described in the gourd of Jonah. And to properly understand Jonah, it can be demonstrated that Jonah is the once all the minor prophets are placed into historical perspective in a proper manner, in a proper manner, Jonah is absolutely the earliest of all of the books of the prophets. And next after him are Hosea, Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. Not necessarily in that same order, but they were all contemporaries with one another. Now, Isaiah had prophesied the longest in that group. But during the time of Isaiah's prophesying, we also see Hosea, Amos, and Micah were prophesying. And all the other prophets came later. Every single one of them. And, and that can definitely be established. I've already established that. It's in a short article at Christogenia. It, it really does need to be expounded on. So one day, it'll probably become a podcast. Or, or a fuller presentation, at least. So, Jonah went to Nineveh that the men of Nineveh repent of, of their sin, and that's fine. They didn't necessarily have to know what sin was, but every man understands what wickedness is. And Jonah was told in chapter 1 in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. All of the, even though they weren't the laws of Yahweh God, all of the nations, the Genesis 10 nations of, of the Adamic race in Mesopotamia and its surroundings had their own codes of law and knew the basic differences between right and wrong. They really did. They knew, or they at least had their own view of morality and immorality. Now, of course, with the Canaanites and, and the Rephaim, morality and immorality were completely relative, right? That They were absolutely not moral. However, most of the Adamic nations did have a concept of morality that if a prophet of the Hebrews had gone to Nineveh and 
announce their wickedness, they would know that certain of the things that he was speaking about were morally wrong. So that was why Jonah was sent, but he was also sent as an example to the children of Israel, and that is in the account of the gourd in the closing chapter of Jonah where Jonah would be sheltered from the heat of the sun, which I believe represents the fires of torment that were about to come upon the entire east. And that took a thousand years. No, I'm sorry. That took about 2,000 years to unfold completely before the Middle East was simply turned brown and black. But that was about to come on the Middle East, so the children of Israel had to be moved to another place so that Yahweh could judge that old world with those fires of torment. So the children of Israel, under the shelter of the gourd, which is the children of Assyria or the Assyrians, would be sheltered from the sun for three days, I believe it is. And that's how they migrated into a new homeland that was prophesied for them to have all the way back in Second Samuel and also in the punishments for disobedience in the book of Deuteronomy, in the law. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, the children of Israel are explicitly punished, uh, promised a new and different homeland. So they wouldn't be in Palestine forever. So the Assyrian and their punishment was the vehicle to accomplish that promise. It all fits together without a doubt. Once you have all of the pertinent pieces of the puzzle and understand world history, we're off on another digression. I don't know if you have anything to respond yeah, that um, that that's how um, we could rebuild, right? Because we had to be away from those Canaanites. We we could never get anywhere, as we see now, where, where Jews have infiltrated and uh, gradually corrupted us. And, and once we were in Europe, we, we rebuilt. But now we're basically back at the beginning, right? Yes, we've come full circle without without a doubt. But that was prophesied to happen. It's it's all in there. We have definitely come full circle. Now our people are, most white Christians today are, they're no longer Christians, so they no longer consider themselves Christians, and they're, without a doubt, worshiping the beast, and they're worshiping the beast even if they're going to church. They're worshiping the beast. They're wearing those masks, they're getting those vaccines, they're going along with the general society in order that they can lead economically comfortable lives in order that they would have good business and and things like that they're pleasing the beast they're they're being told on television that they're helping each other but they're really just pleasing the beast and conforming to the jewish world mercantile system which is the dragon that puts its power behind a beast that's what they're doing they're worshiping the beast, without a doubt. And 
there are a lot of people bearing the mark of the beast, even that don't have COVID vaccines and masks, that worship the beast in other ways by going along with things that are actually sinful in the eyes of God, such as race mixing and sodomy and and things like that. So even when you agree with those things, you're basically worshiping the beast rather than worshiping God and keeping his commandments. So I think that the COVID vaccine or the masks themselves are not the mark of the beast because many people that don't do those things still worship the beast in other ways. But it's the most obvious sign that we have seen to date of the worship of the beast besides actually having a mixed race wife or or children. Either way, you're worshiping the beast. There is a yeah, more... I've seen someone describe that... Um, where it, I'm sorry. Sorry, just quickly where it says the mark is in the hand and the forehead. It's what you do, your right hand, the works you do in life, and um, in the forehead is what you're thinking, the mind. So if you're worshiping the beast what you're thinking and what you're physically doing is all coinciding uh, with worshiping the beast, right? Right. It's not an actual physical mark on your hand or your forehead. It's what you do and what you think. And that's revealed earlier on in, in the books of the law. I believe it's in Exodus, but it might be numbers where the children of Israel several times are told that they should keep the commandments of the law on their right hand and on the frontlets between their eyes, which is actually an, an awkward translation that would have been better simply as foreheads. So we see the same language used in relation to the law to keep this in your right hand and on your forehead so that you follow the law. You always follow the law. So if at the other end of the Bible, people had the mark of the beast on their right hands and on their foreheads, what does that mean? Well, that means that they are following the ways, the commandments of the beast instead of the ways and commandments of God. And that's why they think that sodomy or homosexuality is permissible and acceptable, and that's why they think that pharmacia, which is sorcery or pharmaceuticals, are good and permissible and acceptable, which actually corrupt the creation of God, and that's why they think that race mixing is acceptable. And that was the first sin in Genesis in chapters 3 and 6 was race mixing. Today it's found to be acceptable and it's only acceptable to all those who worship the beast. Christ said it would be as it was in the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, the flood came upon the world because of their race mixing. And we face that same problem today. And all those who partake of it, without a doubt, are worshiping the beast in more ways than one. There is a more explicit messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. 
and and our subject here is the blood of the lamb so that's that that is I, I should just remind our listeners of that because we've already had so many digressions. The digressions are fine. Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to read half a dozen verses. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, not for anybody else's transgressions and iniquities, because nobody else was under the law. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The children of Israel should have been living in peace, but they were being chastised. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him, this is a prophecy of Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And that's a clear messianic prophecy which describes Christ as a lamb being brought to the slaughter, which is the purpose of our citing that. The word redeemer, and we're going to get into this word redeemer because Peter connected redemption, the redeeming of the Christians of Anatolia, directly to the blood of the lamb in that passage which we had cited from 1 Peter chapter 1 at the beginning of this presentation. The word Redeemer appears five times in the Old Testament outside of the prophecies of Isaiah. Once in Job, who lived in the period of the judges, Job speaks prophetically and says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. Again, in the 19th Psalm, David professes that Yahweh is his Redeemer. In the 78th Psalm, Asaph wrote in reference to the children of Israel of the captivity, Asaph was a prophet of the captivity, and said, And they remembered that God was their rock, and the high God their Redeemer. Finally, in Proverbs, in chapter 23, Solomon wrote generally of the Redeemer of the fatherless in reference to the law, suggesting that God would punish all those who oppress them. Moving ahead to Jeremiah, in chapter 50, we read, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, The children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together, and all that took them captives held them fast, 
and they refused to let them go. Now, this is a messianic prophecy in relation to this Redeemer, which we see in Jeremiah and throughout Isaiah, as we shall see. Their Redeemer, continuing with Jeremiah chapter 50, their Redeemer is strong. Yahweh of hosts is his name. He shall truly plead their cause, that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. So, once again, it is attested that Yahweh God is the Redeemer of Israel, as opposed to the inhabitants of Babylon. That, too, is a type for Revelation chapter 18, where the children of Israel are told to come out of Babylon, lest they suffer her punishments. And we see that there are many people who are actually not of Israel who will have no choice but to be punished along with Babylon because they're not told to come out. But in the prophet Isaiah, the word Redeemer appears on 13 occasions. And there might be other forms of the same word found elsewhere in Scripture, but I'm focusing on this form of the word. On every one of them, it is professing, or Yahweh is declaring, that he is the Redeemer of the children of Israel in relation to messianic prophecies of their salvation. These begin in Isaiah chapter 41, and it is in that chapter which was written after the Assyrians had taken away most of both Judah and Israel into captivity that the prophet had begun addressing the children of Israel in captivity. So we read, as that address begins, that Israel is promised the help of God against all their enemies, from verse 13. For I, Yahweh thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and all ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, which is an allegory for large nations, and beat them small, and shalt make the hills an allegory or analogy for smaller nations, and shall make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in Yahweh, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. Now, I can discuss the historical fulfillments of this prophecy as the children of Israel, in one form or another, either as Parthians, or as Scythians, or Chimerians, or Romans, or as Dorian Greeks, did indeed come to destroy all of the other nations and dominate over the world. But then, on the other hand, in all the places they came to occupy in the east and on the coast of Africa, they themselves were destroyed and overrun by these aliens. So, it was a lengthy and complex process by which all of this was fulfilled. In subsequent chapters, in Isaiah chapter 44, 
Yahweh is described as the King of Israel and his, meaning Israel's, Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, and addresses those same children of Israel by saying, Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, in verses 6 and 24. Then, in Isaiah chapter 47, the children of Israel themselves are portrayed as saying, As for our Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. In chapter 48, we read, Thus saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh thy God, who teaches thee to profit, which leads thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Then, in chapter 49, in verse 7, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. And at the end of the verse it says, still addressing Israel, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, speaking to Israel. And at the end of the same chapter, it speaks of the nations which had oppressed Israel. And we read from verse 26, And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Here the fate of the unclean, whom the children of Israel were commanded to come out from become, should be fully apparent. So, in all these prophecies, we see very clearly that the concept of Redeemer and the concept of salvation are all for Israel and cannot be disconnected from the actual Old Testament children of Israel. There's no disconnecting these things in any of these prophecies. There is no promise of salvation or redemption for any other people. That must be and true. And Bill, at the end of time... I'm sorry. Sorry, Bill. Uh, I was just going to say, at the end of time, when Christ returns and everyone's resurrected, the Adamic race, they'll realize that, then they will realize that um, Yahweh or Christ really was the Redeemer only for Israel, because we're the only ones who spread out and survived until the end of time, all the other Adamic nations faded away, right? So Well, right, and I really believe right? that the entire truth will be known across the entire race, and Israel will stand as an example of the favor of God towards those who keep his law and the punishments of God for those who don't, which actually came upon the entire race. And even if it's not described explicitly in the New Testament, it is alluded to. For instance, in Acts chapter 14, where Paul of Tarsus had explained that Yahweh God had basically permitted all of the other nations to go their own way to see if they would seek him. And of course, none of them did. They all went off into idolatry. Now, the context of that 
is found in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Because Noah was a preacher of righteousness, according to the same apostle Peter. So Noah knew the truth, and Noah must have taught his sons the truth, and his sons were all on the ark with Noah. They experienced and were aware of what happened and of what they were being saved from. Yet, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11 and events that happened not 500 years after the flood, we see that they had all gone off into idolatry and went their own way. Abraham's ancestors were all idolaters, which we learn from, I believe it's Joshua chapter 24 or Joshua chapter 25, where he professes that Abraham's fathers were were idolaters on the other side of the flood in old time. Now, where it says on the other side of the flood, it's not talking about the flood of Noah. It's talking about the river Euphrates because Abraham dwelt on the other side of the river Euphrates and his ancestors were on the other side of the river Euphrates. So the other side of the Euphrates in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. So out of this entire old Adamic world, which existed for probably, and we use the Septuagint chronology because it's far superior to that of the Masoretic text, for probably 12 to 1400 years before the call of Abraham, this entire Adamic world, which with Noah had the truth, had gone off into idolatry and the ways of the Rephaim that are found in ancient Sumer. So, And it's only 10 generations, right? It happened that fast. Probably about 10 generations, yes, in those five or 600 years to the birth of Abraham. Mm, I'm sorry, more like 900 years to the birth of Abraham. There's very few generations because men lived a long time. It's probably not much more than 10. That's true. I haven't counted. I don't have it all in my head. But 10 generations is sufficient to explain that. With the length of time that men were living in those days when they didn't have their first children until they were somewhere between 60 and 120. And even Isaac was 60, I believe, when Jacob and Esau were born. In Isaiah chapter 54, we read of the relationship of the punishment of Israel to the promised redemption. And the word of Yahweh says, For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall be shall he be called. Why does it say that? Because the children of Israel were promised to inherit the earth. Even as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham was promised that his seed would inherit the earth. So therefore, the God of the whole earth shall Yahweh be called. For Yahweh has called thee. Now, Israel was the bride of Yahweh. Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God, meaning when Israel was taken into captivity. 
And then he says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. So if Israel was taken into captivity, the same children of Israel are promised to be gathered in Christ. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with the everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. That small moment lasted for nearly 800 years from the time when the first tribes were taken into captivity. Even later, in Isaiah chapter 59, the exclusivity of the covenants and promises of God for the children of Israel is once again attested in relation to redemption, where it says, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them the turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith Yahweh. And there were other promises of a new covenant. This is explaining or describing the new covenant in a certain way. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith Yahweh, from henceforth and forever. So here we have this Redeemer, and to the purpose to turn them from transgression in Jacob, meaning the ancient children of Israel, is for their seed and their seed seed, their children and their children's children forever. So we see an affirmation of the racial covenant with Jacob and his descendants. That's the only way to describe that is as a racial covenant, a family covenant. Then in chapter 60, the reversal of their punishment is once again prophesied. Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee. These added to the text. It's not talking about land. It's talking about a people. I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. Thou shalt also suck the milk of the Gentiles of the nations, the Genesis 10 nations, and shall suck the breasts of kings, and thou shalt know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. There's no way that you could ever imagine that this new covenant, when this Redeemer comes, is going to give it to other people or let other people have a part in it besides Jacob. Nowhere ever is that stated in Scripture. Then, near the end of Isaiah... Yeah, Phil, would it in, be fair to say that... Um, sorry, I was just going to say that Christianity isn't really a religion. It's actually just a covenant between Yahweh and his people, right? It's, that, it's that that's simple. That's exactly like, what like it a is. Like a marriage. That would be the, the real explanation, right? That's exactly what it is. It, it's a covenant relationship between Yahweh God and a specific nation or family of people and it's not for anybody else and one marries somebody of an alien race 
then one is violating that covenant and the children are not a part of it. The apostles themselves had urged Christians not to commit fornication, which the apostles themselves describe as the pursuit of different flesh, of the flesh of other races. A bastard shall not enter the house of the Lord or the congregation of the Lord, which are his people. Now, we might have bastards among us, but Yahweh God is not counting those bastards as his people. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted out. And of course, Yahweh created the horse, and of course, Yahweh created the donkey, but he did not create the mule. And that's just a, an obvious example of that problem. Near the end of Isaiah, in chapter 63, the children of Israel are portrayed as having said to Yahweh their God, Doubtless thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledges us not, because they were put off, they were in captivity. They were punished in captivity. Thou, O Yahweh, art our Father and our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Yahweh, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake the tribes of thine inheritance, referring to those twelve tribes of the children of Israel. It was from sin which the children of Israel needed to be redeemed, so that they would not suffer the ultimate penalty of death for their sins. So we read in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 52, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall come no more into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, and ye shall be redeemed without money. So they sold themselves for naught. They sold themselves into sin, as Paul of Tarsus explained later on. You were sold into sin. For thus saith Yahweh God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. That represents the two captivities of the children of Israel. First in Egypt, and Yahweh redeemed them from Egypt, and now they're off in Assyrian captivity. For the most part, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were spared, but even Isaiah prophesied that they would ultimately go into Babylonian captivity, which they did. This is the entire context of redemption in Scripture. And Paul of Tarsus explained how that redemption applied to the children of Israel in Romans chapter 7, where he wrote along the same lines of Isaiah's prophecy concerning the bereaved wife. And he said, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion 
over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress, which meant she was liable to punishment by stoning, to death. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. When Christ died on the cross, Israel was freed from the punishments of the law. But in Hosea, after he announced the divorce of Israel and sent them off into captivity, Yahweh had also promised to betroth himself to Israel forever, and that too is in the person of Christ. Thus we read in Hosea chapter 2, as Israel is being divorced, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Of course, those words were also an explicit promise to the children of Israel. This explains how and why Peter, in his first epistle, told his readers that they had been redeemed with the blood of the Lamb. But that too is a matter of the law. And in that manner, the law as well as the first Passover represented a prophecy of Christ. So we read in Exodus chapter 12, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts, and on the upper door post, or the lintel as we call it, of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. This blood on the doorpost, which had preserved the children of Israel from the destroyer of the firstborn of Egypt, presaged the blood of Christ, which saves the children of Israel from sin today, even if we suffer in the flesh. For that reason, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, Much more then, now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Then he told the Ephesians, 
referring to Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And in chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, who sometimes, ye who sometimes, and that should have actually been translated, ye who at one time, were afar off, are made nigh, or near, by the blood of Christ. Likewise, referring to Christ in Colossians chapter 1, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Then Paul wrote at length in Hebrews chapter 9, how the blood of Christ forgave the sins of the children of Israel once for all time, whereas the high priests were required by the law to conduct the same ritual with the blood of the lamb once every year. So Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 13, a little later on, wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Then further on, now the peace Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The sheep could only be the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There can't be any wolves or goats or dogs who just kind of wander into the flock and get in line with the sheep. That's not how it works. The promises aren't for them. So both Peter and Paul had understood the forgiving of sins and the redemption prophecy to Israel to be found in the blood of the Lamb, and that Christ was that Lamb. So we read in Revelation chapter 7 of the sealing of 144,000 of Israel. But it is not they alone who would achieve salvation. Rather, after the sealing, we read, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. Now, that's the promise to Abraham that his seed would be innumerable of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Then a little further on, where an elder is portrayed as having inquired as to the identity of this multitude, we read in the words of John himself, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. So John did not answer the question. The elder did. Where it continues, and we read, And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That tribulation is the prophecy punishment of the children of Israel, which we have just seen in the related prophecies in Isaiah and Hosea. Those who would wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb are all those who suffered in that tribulation and in the end accept his redemption. 
They are from every Israelite family and every nation as Israel was to be scattered abroad and driven to the ends of the earth during the time of that tribulation. This interpretation is confirmed in Revelation chapter 12 where we read in part and the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. The dragon is then described as persecuting the seed of the woman, the woman with the twelve tribes, and not all the races and nations of the world, the children of Israel, the children of God, only they can overcome his enemies by the blood of the Lamb because these promises are only for them and not for anybody else. Once that blood was shed, the gospel of reconciliation was announced abroad. And that leads us to discuss the scope of that announcement, which is the scope of the gospel. I don't know if you have anything to say. Yeah, and the um, the dragon's not um, persecuting any other races, right? The the any Africans or chinks that they're not being persecuted. It's only us, right? No, they're being used to persecute us. That's why our nations are being overrun by them in the colonial period. Yes, the devil swarming us with beasts, right? In the colonial period, their numbers, their populations were all very small, but they have been facilitated they have been enabled to grow into very large populations so large that they're spilling out of their own nations because they cannot feed themselves they're spilling out of their own countries i should say they can't feed themselves but they were enabled to grow to the numbers they have through white technology and the white man's ill-begotten concept that he should feed these people. White food aid, white agricultural techniques and skills and equipment being transferred to those countries have enabled them to grow to the size of their current populations whereby they can overrun white nations. And that's happening today in China with the Chinese and with the Africans and with the Arabs and with all these other nations, Indians, Pakistanis, they've only been able to achieve the numbers they have at the expense of the white European nations who at the same time are suffering cultural decline in their sin because women are off sleeping with women and men are off sleeping with men and abortion mills are busy 24 hours a day at seven days a week and we don't have babies anymore we have all these pets 
to care for instead, and the pets are eating us. And that's all on account of our sin. The Jew is able, the international, international Jewry is able to do to us what it has done to us on account of our own sin. It's nobody else's fault. The devil is only doing what he does. The, the dragon is only persecuting the woman because that's his natural intrinsic nature to do that. And that's explained beginning in Genesis 3.15. Yeah, you can't be angry with um, a wolf if he's coming in and picking off your sheep. That's just his nature. But you can protect the sheep, right? Build a fence, put some guard dogs. Shoot the wolf. But the wolf would just... Shoot exactly. the wolf. It's a natural reaction. It's not evil to shoot the wolf. But today our people can't even identify the wolves. When evil beasts and, and any kind of wild beast wanders through your neighborhood and starts devouring your women and children, you shoot the beast. That That's natural. It's been natural for thousands of years. But today, the beasts are dressed in, in, in human clothes and, and they can speak our language. So we've forgotten that they're beasts and we should be shooting them. It's our own sin and, um, that's preventing us. And um, here we're on to the next one, the, the scope of the gospel. And um, here it's like where um, it, it's all about context where um, Christ and, and other prophecies, you know, um, biblical prophecies from the old prophets state that um, he's going to come for the children of Israel. And then it might say, and, and the nations. But once you realize donations are the Israelites that were scattered and formed new nations, then nothing's changing. It's still the same people. And it can't mean all people of the world or, or every uh, place, every um, race and every uh, country everywhere. It's only specifically for the children of Israel, right? Well, absolutely. And, and if Christ had attested that he came to fulfill the words of the prophets, and if, as we explained here recently, the apostles had professed that Christ came to fulfill the words of the prophets and the promises made to the fathers, then we cannot force, honestly, we cannot force an interpretation of any passage in the New Testament in a manner which is contrary to the words of the prophets and the promises of the fathers. Therefore, if there is another way to interpret these passages where they do not conflict with the words of the prophets and the promises of the fathers, then that is the way that they must be interpreted. Otherwise, we make God and his Christ and his apostles into liars. And that's what Judeo-Christians and Jews do. They turn God and all of his apostles and prophets into liars. We do not do that. We believe God. We believe Christ. We believe the apostles. And we believe the prophets. Many people presume that where Christ had told the apostles to take the gospel to, quote-unquote, all the world, and to, quote-unquote, all nations, it means that it was meant 
for every single person, race, and nation on the planet. But that is not true. In Matthew chapter 24, we read, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Why hasn't the end come yet? Because the gospel of the kingdom hasn't been preached in all the world yet. We have the gospel of the kingdom. Identity Christians had the gospel of the kingdom, and our gospel is hated and suppressed. It's despised everywhere. They try to take us off the internet. They try to stop us from publishing our books. They've tried a million other ways to suppress us. And here we are. First, just because all nations are to receive the gospel as a witness does not mean that its message is meant for them. But in truth, there is a definite article in the Greek accompanying the word for nations, and it should have been translated as denations, referring to particular nations, and not just any nations. The same circumstance exists where we read at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Go ye therefore and teach all the nations, all nations in the King James Version, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. It should have said, teach all the nations. And from the use of the word world in the last verse, we see it could not have referred to the planet. We will discuss that at greater length soon. In Mark, we read another version of the two passages which we have just cited from Matthew. First in chapter 13, and the gospel must be first published among all nations. But once again, there is a definite article and it would be properly read as the nations, all the nations. The last 11 verses of Mark chapter 16 are demonstrably spurious. They exist in none of the oldest manuscripts. We shall nevertheless read a relevant portion of the spurious passage in verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. The last phrase is singular. <clears throat> if it was plural, it would have to be translated as every creature, or all creatures. But it's singular. And the word for creature, which is also, and more frequently, translated as creation, is accompanied by a definite article. So the phrase, which is passe te ketisai, would have better been translated as all the creation, not as every creature. Finally, in Acts chapter 1, immediately prior to the ascension of Christ, he tells his apostles, but ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. 
This evokes the blessing of Joseph, as Moses had promised in Deuteronomy chapter 33, that his glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people, meaning the people of Israel, together to the ends of the earth. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. Finally, there is a favorite quotation of scripture by Judaized Christians who insist that the gospel is for all peoples and just about the only verse in scripture that most of them seem to remember is John 3.16. For so God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But does this verse really describe anyone of the entire planet who claims to believe in Jesus as being loved by God? If so, who are those disgusting and wicked men who could not be clean? But the words translated as world did not mean planet to the apostles, and neither did the words translated as earth. In Isaiah chapter 14, the king of Babylon is described as the man that made the earth to tremble, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof. Yet the king of Babylon only ruled over a relatively small part of the planet, the portion, I should say, a portion in Mesopotamia and parts of Anatolia, the Levant, Arabia, and Northern Africa. Later, Jeremiah used the term world in the same narrow way where he wrote in Lamentations chapter 4, the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. While I will not discuss the meaning of Hebrew terms here, a brief discussion of the meanings of the Greek terms, frequently translated as world, should be sufficient and the Hebrew has its counterparts. We're focusing on the Greek because Greek is the language of the gospel. Of these, there are three words, Greek words, all translated as world in the King James Version. The three are ahion, or eon, cosmos, and oikumene. The word eon, ahion, describes a length of time, or an eon in English. We speak of eons as perhaps tens or hundreds of thousands of years. But in Greek, it was just any long length of time. The word cosmos means order. It can refer to the overall natural order of creation. But not merely to the planet, and not in a merely physical sense. To imagine that it means all peoples on the whole planet is completely removing the word from its original meaning as it never describes such a thing. <clears throat> In that general sense, 
it more appropriately described the order of the heavenly bodies, seasons, stars, sun, and moon. But it can also refer to the society as the order and organization of the governments and dwelling places of men. Finally, the word oikumene refers to the physical dwelling place of men, to the land upon which the society is organized, which, once again, is not necessarily the planet. So, Luke wrote... So, so Bill, um, just I just wanted to say that... Um... The, the people then, the Greeks, the Romans, it said they didn't even know uh, how large the world was, right? All, I mean, they had knowledge that there was lands far off like China and that Africa went on and that uh, the Germanic tribes, they didn't quite know how far it went up north. So, so they couldn't really have a world for the whole world because they didn't even know how where it ended or how big the world was like we do now, right? Right. Strabo actually, in his geography, and this is probably about the time of the birth of Christ. Strabo lived and wrote up until about 25 AD. So the way he described things in his geography is exemplary of the way that people in the time of Christ perceived these words and and their definitions, their meanings. Strabo defined the oikumene. He described it as being the coasts of Europe, mostly south of the Danube, because Strabo could not imagine people living north of the Danube River on account of the cold, and he says that, he states that explicitly, and stretching from what we know as Iberia or Spain today to the Indus River, and including the Mediterranean Basin and the lands of Mesopotamia, Arabia, Persia, that was the oikumene to Strabo. He describes it distinctly and sets those limits upon it because that was, to him, the Greek and Roman world. And that was, to him, where the cosmos or order of men and governments had been established. And that is why I translate that word cosmos as society, because that is the best English language equivalent which we have to the way which the word was used in the Hellenistic literature and in the New Testament. There is no better equivalent as far as I'm concerned. So Luke wrote in chapter 2 of his gospel, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, as you had said, Strabo absolutely knew, and so did these New Testament writers. Paul, at least Paul, because he was highly educated, that there were many people of strange races who had dwelt beyond the edges of the Oikumene, outside of the borders of the Oikumene. They knew about the pygmies in Africa. Diodorus Siculus wrote at length about the dark race, the dark-skinned savages 
of Ethiopia, who he said, and, and they weren't original Ethiopians. They were invaders into Ethiopia and Egypt from Nubia at an earlier time, as we discussed, in the 8th century B.C., but Diodorus Siculus is writing in the 1st century B.C., and he's writing about these dark-skinned savages in Ethiopia who he described as being so far from human kindness. He could hardly imagine them being classed as people, in other words, because to be human, you have to be humane. And he described these people as being far removed from being humane. So they knew about the Chinese. They knew about the trade routes. Alexander, 300 years before Christ, 350 years before Christ, had established forts on the borders of China and governed the or, or tried to keep control, maintain control of the trade routes going in and out of the east. They weren't ignorant. They had words for the Chinese and China. They knew they existed, but they weren't part of their world. They were never these sub-Saharan Africans and these Orientals in, in the Far East were never part of the world of the people either in the New Testament or in the Roman Empire. So Luke wrote, or in the Greek Hellenistic worldview. So Luke wrote in chapter 2 of his gospel that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. There, the word for world is oikumene. And we see that his concept of all the world was equivalent to all of the Roman Empire. The portion of the world which which Caesar had the power to tax. We see a very similar use of the term for world in Isaiah chapter 62, where the very purpose of declaring the gospel to the world is explicitly for the benefit of the children of Israel. And we read from verse 11, Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, which can only be the children of Israel, Behold, thy salvation cometh. His reward is with him, and his work before him. They shall call them, meaning Israel, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. So even going to the end of the world, the gospel is only for the children of Israel. It is described in the wisdom of Solomon that only the children of Israel were the world of which the scriptures and Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, was concerned. This is found in Wisdom chapter 18 where we read, For in a long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the Father's graven and thy majesty upon the diadem of his head. And that's a reference to the stones, the four rows of three stones each, meaning that there were 12 stones on that long garment, and they represented the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. 
And there was nothing else on that long garment. So where it says, for in the long garment was the whole world. And in the four rows of stones was the glory of the Father's graven. That is those 12 stones on the long garment, and they are the whole world. The giving of the law at Sinai was indeed the foundation of the world, which is often referenced in Scripture. That is how Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Paul of Tarsus must have felt the same way. Paul used the phrase foundation of the world in that very manner in Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 26, where he was speaking of the sacrifices made by the Levitical high priest, and he said, I'm sorry, this is in verses 25 and 26, but that's, that's okay. He said from verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then he for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. So when did the high priest begin making the annual sacrifices? After Sinai? The sacrifices for sins? After Sinai? And if the high priest started making the sacrifices for sins after Sinai, then according to Paul of Tarsus, the foundation of the world must have been at Sinai. So that's the world they're speaking of. The world is the societal organization of the children of Israel. That's what it is. That's what it means. And that's what it is in the New Testament as well as the Old. That's the world with which Yahweh God is concerned. So Paul said, For then he must have often suffered, speaking of the high priest, since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, because that world is coming to an end, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Speaking of Christ. And so uh, the high so priest... That he was going to replace the uh, Adamic world with Israel, right? So he's basically, uh, since Israel now is the Adamic world, he was just speaking... Um, with that knowledge ready, basically saying as though it was already happened, right? But that he often does. Well, right, but it also represents the end of the order of the Levitical priests, of the children of Israel under the Levitical priests, to the start of an order of the children of Israel under Christ. So you could look at it either way. So, furthermore, in his epistle to the Romans, Paul is citing from the Septuagint version of the 14th Psalm, which is actually Psalm number 13 in the Septuagint. And the citation is verbatim from the Greek in verses 12 through 17 of Romans chapter 3, where he wrote, They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of apse is under their lips, 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So who there is all the world but all the children of Israel? Paul had written similarly to the Galatians in chapter 4 of that epistle of the circumstances under which Christ had come. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Paul is not contradicting himself. So here he spoke in that same manner to the Romans. And since only the children of Israel were under the law, and since Paul himself had written in that same epistle in chapter 5, that sin was not imputed where there was no law, then all the world who are guilty before God can only describe those same children of Israel who were under the law, and that is what Solomon had also described. I know that you cut off for a moment, and I didn't realize it until I had read most of the <laughs> two paragraphs but here we are, and I've just read Romans and Galatians, and they prove without doubt that the children of Israel are only the world. All the children of Israel are the all the world because only the children of Israel were under the law, and Christ clearly came to redeem those who were under the law. Paul can't be made to contradict himself, just like Paul can't be made to contradict the law and the prophets, and the promises to the fathers. Yeah, and as we've said many times in Revelation, there's only the uh, 12 gates, the 12 entrances, so only Israel's there at the end. And from about Christ onwards, the world was essentially Israel, right? By that time, the world was just those 12 stones, more or less. And that's when it really all began, right? That's when uh, a lot of the prophecies hadn't yet been filled, but that's when we really started to take over and then spread across the whole world. And uh, most of the blessings were really fulfilled from then on, right? And that was the new world. Well, yes and no. The, the, it, it's all a process, right? The world really began at Sinai. And, and only he was only concerned for the children of Israel from that time forward. He gave up all the other nations, but maintain them so that he could use them to punish the children of Israel when they sinned. So by the time of Christ, the children of Israel had really already come to dominate the world, but they weren't with Christ. They weren't with God. They had gone off and put, been put off in punishment and had gone into captivity or had left during the earlier captivity, as in the case of the Romans, 
or before the captivity, as in the case of many of the Phoenicians and the Dorian Greeks, and began to fulfill those promises to Abraham that his seed would become innumerable, that it would become many nations, all the promises to the patriarchs. But those fulfillments are not made evident until the ministry of Paul of Tarsus and the words of Paul of Tarsus. And that world would not be fully formed until it was reconciled to God and became a Christian world, which is what I think you are trying to explain. Yeah, it took some time to form, uh, but by t by the time of Christ, it, it really, um, well, we essentially had it all by then, right? Well, right. And, and the Parthians that controlled the Persian Empire were Israelites. They were from the Scythians. That can be established in the pages of Josephus and Herodotus. The the Romans were descended from the Trojans, and they were substantially Israelites. There were a lot of Greeks among them and, and other Shemitic tribes among them that were not Israel in Italy, even in northern Italy with the Etruscans, who were Lydians. So the Romans themselves were primarily Israelites because they descended from the Trojans. Then there, there, were, there were the Dorian Greeks, who were Israelites who came from Dor into Greece after the Trojan War. And they, being predominantly Israelites, also had branches of, of Dorian and Danan Greeks, who were Israelites from Egypt, had formed the people later known as Macedonians, along with Illyrians, who were descendants from the Trojans, related to the Trojans. So in the West, there were the Phoenicians, mostly Israelites of the northern tribes of Israel who had come from Tyre, from the tribes of Asher, Gad, Naphtali, Zebulun, and so forth. And they settled in the extreme west. There is a lot of history to discuss that we've already discussed in the earlier presentations in the series in order to demonstrate it fully. Last, there are the Chimerians, or the Galatahi, as they're called, and Paul, they were the Galatians, and Paul explicitly explained that they were children of Israel. They were a branch of the people that became known as the Germanic people, and they didn't only settle in Galatia and Anatolia, they settled all along the Danube River and into what became later known as Gaul. And they were the same Galatahi in Gaul that they were in Anatolia. And Strabo and Diodorus Siculus both described them in those same terms. So these people became the modern Christian world. And that fulfilled the promise to Abraham that his seed would inherit the nations. They basically came to dominate all of the land that was formerly held by those Genesis 10 nations. And there were migrations of the people and wars between them as a result of those migrations, tribes of them, branches of them competing for better, more, fert more fertile soil, all the way to the 6th and 7th centuries AD, and in a few cases in Eastern Europe, even far beyond that in Central and Eastern Europe, perhaps to the 9th or 10th century AD. 
and not all of them became Christian right away. Some of them didn't become Christians until the 13th century AD. So yes, everything is a process. Nothing happens in a day. None of the fulfillments, none of the prophecies of God are fulfilled in a day. Even if he says it's a day, it's not just one human day, because as Peter said, a day to Yahweh is like a thousand years. The whole revelation describes a series of processes that would occur, and some of them took a thousand years. Okay. The fall of Rome took 500 years <laughs> from its from its height to from its height the very extent of its territorial holdings in the time of Trajan to its ultimate political fall is at least 350 years from perhaps 125 to 476 AD 350 years for Rome to fall. Things happened a lot slower back then than they seem to happen today on the surface. Okay. This is how Paul also saw the promises of the gospel and the commission given to the apostles by Christ to bring the gospel to all the nations and to go to all the world. So in Romans chapter 10, Paul was citing a prophecy of the going out of the gospel from Isaiah and he wrote, And how shall they preach, except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, and bring glad tidings of good things. Now the word gospel in English means good message. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who has believed our report? Then, after we clearly see that this is a prophecy of the gospel of Christ, Paul goes on, and he had attested, So then, faith comes by hearing, and by hearing the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Therefore, according to Paul of Tarsus, the gospel had already been announced under the end of the world. And he wrote that epistle in 57 AD. Now, by then, there were no Bibles printed in Swahili or Hindi or Chinese or in any other language but Greek and Hebrew. This is confirmed later in the same epistle where we read, But now it is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations. Made known. This is Romans chapter 16, and Paul is using the past tense in order to make the attestation that the gospel had already been made known according to the commandment of the everlasting God. But now it is manifest. It is made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. 
Again, there Paul had used a past tense indicating that the gospel had already reached all the nations, the nations which it was intended to reach. Because any other nations didn't matter. Later, after Paul is in bonds in Rome, perhaps around 62 AD, he wrote the Colossians. And in chapter 1 of the epistle, he said, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it does also in you, since the day you heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Using the present tense, Paul therefore attested that the gospel message was already in all the world by that time. This is confirmed once again further on in the same chapter, speaking of Christ, Colossians chapter 1 verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated, at one time alienated, and enemies or odious, in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled, language which should only apply to Israel, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And here, that phrase, every creature, is, in Greek, the same exact phrase, passe te or all the creation, which we had seen in Mark chapter 16, Paul is saying it's already done. Indubitably, in the words of Paul, of Tarsus himself, the whole world had already received the gospel of Christ as every nation of those same children of Israel had the opportunity to hear and accept it by that time, even if it took a thousand years for some of them to finally do so. In the first century, not only was the gospel in Rome, but it had already been brought to the western extremities of Europe, into Gaul, and throughout Anatolia and Syria, into Scythia and Mesopotamia. This was the same world which Caesar had the power to tax, at least for the most part. And it was the same world which the dispersed children of Israel in their various branches had come to dominate by the time of Christ. Let's commence with Martin Luther. We'll finish with a short few paragraphs on Martin Luther. I just want to know if you had anything to say before we go that far. Yes, here we see even though um, Martin Luther, he was a little on the Jewish right, he absolutely despised them, but he still thought there were a few good countries there. And he didn't consider any of the other, like the Turks, uh, convertible. He, he just considered Christianity only for the Europeans, right, essentially. 
Yes, I'm sorry you're breaking up pretty bad, but I'll, I'll try to encapsulate and agree with what you had said. Martin Luther, he had become aware of the treachery of the Jews, but even with that, all throughout on the Jews and their lies, in my opinion, he made mistake after mistake because he was following commentaries, Bible commentaries, which were written exclusively by Jews. And he was following Raymond Lowell, who was a Jew, but he wasn't, Lull didn't write a commentary, more, more dangerously, even worse, he was following the Bible commentaries written by Nicholas of Lyra, who was a 13th century converso Jew, and Paul of Burgos, who was a 15th century, I believe, converso Jew. And these two converso Jews had written the most popular and most used commentary on the scriptures in the time of the Reformers. And therefore, their thinking had polluted all of the Reformers, whether it be Luther or Calvin, Huss, it didn't matter. They were all educated in their seminaries, in their monasteries, with these commentaries that were written by Converso Jews. Christianity was already being subverted by Jews that early in its history. So today we like to point at this Bible being screwed up and that Bible being screwed up. Well, the doctrines of Roman Catholic and Protestant churches were all Judaized by the 15th century which is incredible, but that's what happened because the Roman Catholic Church decided to accept converso Jews and not only accept them, but when a, converse, when a converso rabbi claimed to be a Christian and get baptized, he could become a bishop in a church. And they often did, as Paul of Burgos had done. The white European world was even with all of his other mistakes, the white European world was all the world of Martin Luther 1,500 years after Paul of Tarsus. For example, in chapter 13 of his treatise on the Jews and their lies, after citing Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, Luther stated, the proof of this is before your eyes, namely, that the apostles used no spear or sword, but solely their tongues. And their example has been followed in all the world now for 1,500 years by all the bishops, pastors, and preachers, and is still being followed. In the early 16th century, Luther is writing this in 1543. The colonial period was just beginning. And there were no Christian bishops in any part of the planet save Europe, and perhaps a few of the Spanish and Portuguese colonies. The English, French, and Dutch had not yet established any North American colonies of their own. The oldest European colony in North America, St. Augustine, was not founded by the Spanish until 1565. So, there are no Christians or Christian bishops 
anywhere in North America when Martin Luther talked about Christianity being practiced by all the world. The Dutch founded the first European colony in Africa in 1652. So we cannot count Africa as being any part of Luther's all the world. There were no European Christians in Africa when Luther wrote. The first Spanish colony in South America, which is Cumana in Venezuela, was not permanently established until 1569. So South America could not yet have been all the world of Luther's world. There were no surviving Christian nations anywhere in the East as they were all conquered and absorbed by Islam. So when Luther wrote that treatise in 1543, all the world to him was Europe. And while he often wrote of the Muslims in other places and their wars in Eastern Europe, they certainly were not a part of his all the world. They could not have been because he was definitely discounting them when he said that all the world was Christian. And in fact, while, unfortunately, he seemed ignorant of the differences between Judah, Judean, and Jew, Luther did not even consider his Messiah to be the Messiah of other gods and peoples, but only to be hated by them. This is found further on in the same chapter of his writing, where he said, and this also defines what he meant by all the world, it is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the Gentiles in all the world, where he could only mean the European world, accepted without sword or coercion and with no temporal benefits accruing to them, meaning they wouldn't be bribed with foodstuffs by European missionaries like the Africans are, gladly and freely, a poor man of the Jews as the true Messiah. Now, he should have said a poor man of Judah or a poor man of the Judeans because Jew and Judah are certainly not synonymous and Jew and Judea or Judean, are not synonyms. A poor man of the Jews as the true Messiah, one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, and persecuted without end. They did and suffered so much for his sake, and forsook all idolatry, just so that they might live with him eternally. This has been going on now for 1,500 years, and Luther called it all the world, without doubt. No worship of a false god ever endured so long, nor did all the world suffer so much because of it or cling so firmly to it. And I suppose one of the strongest proofs is found in the fact that no other god ever withstood such hard opposition as the Messiah, against whom alone all other gods and peoples have raged, and against whom they all acted in concert, 
speaking of all the other nations, the Mongols and, and the, the Muslims and the Turks who have invaded and tried to destroy Europe and the Arabs against whom alone all other gods and peoples have raged and against whom they all acted in concert no matter how varied they were or how they otherwise disagreed and that's medieval European history all these attacks from people of other gods as Luther explained it who hated Christ and Christians and sought to destroy and conquer Europe long before any Europeans ever had a colony to Luther the Gentiles in all the world were only white Europeans in the European world. The same world taxed by Caesar. The same world of Luke and Paul. That is the world of the apostles, as no other race had heard the gospel when Paul explained that all the world had already heard the gospel. I don't know if I could offer any greater proof than all of that. So even in Luther's time, all the other races despised us and and uh, Christ, right? United, nothing's changed. According to Luther, right. Nothing has changed. Because the devil is still persecuting the seed of the woman and has now surrounded the camp of the saints with all of these other nations who are the niggers and the Arabs and the chinks and the Turks and all these other squat monsters that are in every white nation today. That should be so plain, even to the niggers themselves, in my opinion. Thank you for being here. Thanks for me, as always, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Take care. Good night.